Hello, I'm Theron Tulsma, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways that those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. As we head into summer, and as we all continue to experience a socially distanced life amid a pandemic, we at ICS are exploring a number of possible ways to connect with folks online. This podcast is one of those ways, and it's going to look just a little different for the next few months. Another new way is through our Summer Remote Learning Initiative, where we hope to offer a number of exciting ICS courses at a distance. So we're going to spend the summer talking to our senior members and course leaders in order to give you a sneak peek into the kinds of conversations you could have if you were to take one of these summer courses yourself. First up today, we have Ron Kuypers, Andrew Tebbett, and Hector Acero to tell us about their upcoming course, Evil, Resistance, and Judgment, Hannah Arendt, and Religious Critique. This will be a six-week, all-online course taking place from May 12th to June 18th. So here's Ron, Andrew, and Hector to tell you more about it. Here at Critical Faith, we have spent the past semester inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses, to give us a sort of snapshot into the rhythm of life at ICS. For the summer, we plan to continue on this path by highlighting some of our new online courses, which will be happening over the next few months. I'm Hector Acero, Associate Director of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and a junior member at ICS. And I'm joined by Ron Kuypers, President of ICS, Director of the CPRC, and Senior Member in the Philosophy of Religion. Today, I'm also joined by Andrew Tebbett, ICS alum and recent doctoral graduate at the Department of the Study of Religion of the University of Toronto. Ron and Andrew will be co-teaching a very exciting six-week all-online course starting on May 12th called Evil, Resistance, and Judgment, Hannah Arendt, and Religious Critique. For those interested, Registrations are open. In preparation for this course, we wanted to give you a sneak peek, an idea of what this course would look like and why it matters. So welcome, Ron and Andrew. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Now, I, I happen to know that both of you um, care deeply about, about Aaron's thought and uh, that it has informed the way uh, you view philosophy and philosophy of religion. Um, so can you tell us how has your own interest in Aaron's thought informed the content and structure of this course? 
and why do you think it's important to offer a course like this today? Well, um, what first drew me to Arendt was the fact that she was very distinctly a political thinker. And she actually preferred that title, political thinker, or I think political theorist, to the title of uh, philosopher. Um, and my first serious engagement with her work, which is uh, my master's thesis that I wrote while I was at ICS, um, was very, very much informed and motivated by Arendt's sort of investment in the theme of, of politics. And as a political thinker, Arendt was always interested in the themes of totalitarianism and especially in Nazi Germany and, and those sorts of things, going back to her, her early work, Origins of Totalitarianism. However, it seems like her report on the Eichmann trial is kind of functions as a, as a turning point in her thought. Because um, it seems, at least to me anyways, that after, after that book, after she wrote Eichmann in Jerusalem, she begins to address questions of morality in a much more sort of focused and, and targeted way than she had done previously. So, for example, in The Human Condition, um, which is before Eichmann, she's somewhat critical of the idea of goodness and performing good deeds as kind of a, a not very politically relevant kind of action. But it seems like the Eichmann trial forced her to address the question of individual responsibility and individual morality head on. Or any, any moral theory that's detached from politics or takes morality not to be rooted in, in plurality or politics is, uh, is subject to critique by Arendt. But, she, but those themes of morality do come up in, the, in those later writings. So I'm especially interested in that. And I think the way that we've sort of organized the readings in the course, um, I think, suit us well to sort of track that shift in her thinking from like a very focused political thinker to someone who's very concerned with, with issues of responsibility at, at an individual level. One of the things that's really struck me, um, I've been teaching Hannah Arendt since I started working at ICS in 2004, and I've done several different iterations of this course. And the uh, what I never uh, ceases to amaze me is how um, relevant her thought continues to be. Uh, it almost gains in relevance as time moves on. I think what we're witnessing right now in global geopolitics in uh, the rise of strong men leaders throughout the world, like Donald Trump and Viktor Orban, a kind of return to, I almost want to say, um, proto-fascist or uh, Weimar-era-like kind of political conditions in certain uh, places in the world, um, breakdown in political discourse. Uh, she has things to say about all these kinds of things. quote I read recently that uh, kind of summed it up for me was someone, someone had, was reflecting on their experiences living under Nazi occupation, they said, uh, by the time you realize you're in a dangerous situation, it's too late to escape. <laughs> and you, you, we do wonder without exaggerating if we might be in times like that right now, where the danger around us is growing slowly in, in a creepy way where you don't always notice. And I think uh, there's something in Arendt's thought that um, calls us to pay attention to these kinds of developments. This past fall semester, we talked on this podcast about evil, resistance, and judgment in a number of different ways with a lot of different people. We've had ministers, theologians, philosophers, and other thinkers joining us uh, to discuss these topics. But something we didn't focus on explicitly at that time, though it started to emerge through some of those conversations, was the theme which connects them all, responsibility. Can you tell us some of the main aspects of responsibility in and for Arendt's thought. During the Eichmann trial, what Arendt was keen to understand was the theme of personal responsibility, because after World War II, when uh, Europe was trying to come to a reckoning with what had taken place, with how something like the Holocaust 
became possible. Many people talked about the fact that a totalitarian regime like the Nazi regime eliminates all spaces of personal responsibility. You get sucked up into a system. You become a cog in a machine. Uh, you're just following orders. If you don't follow orders, you'll be killed or executed. You have no choice. You have no responsibility. It's a pretty ironclad exculpatory excuse, right? Because no one's responsible and yet everyone's responsible. So the question of responsibility for Arendt really comes down to one of power. Is it true that at that time, people were completely disempowered, completely unable to resist? Certainly people's ability to act and to resist evil and oppression was hampered. But she's very keen um, to learn from witnesses in the trial uh, about the possibility of resistance. And there were some real signal examples of people who resisted and didn't give up their own personal power to uh, the system. And some of them paid for it with their lives uh, or took incredible risks, but resistance was still possible. And she says in, that, in Eichmann in Jerusalem that um, as long as stories like that could be told, then the Nazi efforts to completely rob anybody, everybody of their power and responsibility were unsuccessful. And um, so really personal responsibility is understanding that while you might be like Eichmann, a bureaucratic functionary, a cog in a larger machine, afterwards, when you are put on trial and put in the witness box, you become an individual again, and all individuals act and have responsibility. So she was really interested in understanding what was Eichmann in particular responsible for. The, uh, it was somewhat of a show trial, and the prosecution in the Israeli government was not so much concerned with what Arendt thought they should be concerned about, which was what is the responsibility of this unique individual in this larger system? They rather wanted to put that Nazism and uh, fascism itself on trial. And she's, she thought that was a mistake. And she thinks that the, the great advantage of a trial is you can actually explore the person's actual actions, deeds, what they did, what they could have done otherwise. And that's what she's interested in. So um, that's where the theme of responsibility, um, as far as Arendt is concerned, I think fits into this. This, this question of, of how Arendt thinks about responsibility, uh, I think really helps to highlight uh, what's, what's unique about her as a political thinker and the extent to which politics sort of motivates her thinking and the extent to which she's interested in, in human beings in the plural and not in the, in the singular. And that's because for Arendt, responsibility claims us all the way into our, into our thinking. She, she thinks that being alone you know, being by yourself is kind of like a derivative phenomenon. In fact, the more basic fact of human experience is the fact that we're in a situation of plurality. Um, we're in a, in a space that we that we share with others, and so even in the, those moments where we're where we're thinking on our own, um, we're always, as she says, two in one. There's always that possibility to to engage in dialogue with oneself and ask oneself, you know, why am I why am I performing this particular action, or what do I think about this particular situation? Um, so in Arendt, you get a really powerful uh, account of the fact that we, um, especially in the kind of uh, political situations uh, that she was that she was analyzing, we, you know, we have no excuse. Um, there's no way we can sort of step outside of our responsibility. We're always responsible, um, even in the depths of our being being alone in thought. That idea of being two in one, of being always in in dialogue with oneself. Um, the idea there is that we're always, even as individuals, we always occupy or inhabit. Um, at least two perspectives, right? There's the, there's our sense of who we are as individuals, but there's also that implicit sense that we have inside of us of how we appear to others. And she thinks that 
um, again, that possibility of, of dialogue with, with oneself and being responsible um, to others uh, sort of informs our, our basic thinking. And so the idea of, you know, as Ron says, being a cog in a machine, um, that kind of excuse isn't really available for, for a rent. And, we, and uh, yeah, in the course, we have at least a couple of readings that really dig into this idea of, of uh, the two-in-one um, that she gets from, uh, from Socrates. Yeah, the two-in-one is important and becomes an important theme in the last book, Responsibility and Judgment. And really, the idea of responsibility, she almost goes with the etymology of the word, the, the ability to respond, right? So mm -hmm. the two-in-one is also your inner dialogue. It's also um, called conscience, right? The voice um, that can judge your, your own actions, even if you're all by yourself and doing it, right? You know, she yeah. often would say the one thing that would prevent you from uh, participating in evil or, or, or uh, doing something uh, wrong or, or act is... That after you do something like that, you have to live with yourself, and you don't want to live with someone who would commit who who would have committed an act like that. And so there's something like sort of built into our uh, individuality that is a kind of a plurality. Um, I know there are some examples um, that uh, are key to Warren's illustration of of responsibility and and resistance. In particular, um, I remember a couple of examples that are that are meaningful and are that resonate with you, Ron. Can you tell us more about those? But I think to give our interdue, she's talking about these mo these times when the chips are down and when resistance is very rare. The 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 isolated examples of resistance are somewhat exceptional, and she wanted to understand that, right? And I think that that. She's not completely wrong about that. The Danish situation she talks about in Eichmann in Jerusalem was simply um, the Danish people started to get into arguments with the Nazi officials that were stationed there about the orders to, you know, round up Jewish people, send them to particular places where they would get on trains. And then, like, basically, um, you know, she goes country by country through Europe and talks about their record and using actual, you know, reportage figures, numbers. So in the Danish example is the singular example of not going along with the orders, openly arguing with, uh, getting into discussions with, you know, a German official station there. Um, and she argues that through these arguments and discussions, uh, that it weakened the resolve of the German officers desire to follow out their own, their own orders. And because of that kind of softening, um, the Danish people were, were able to have, uh, most of their Jews rescued and transported to Sweden. Now, as we near the end of our interview, we would like to know, we would like to return to uh, what you care about, what resonates with you. So of all the things that Arendt might have to offer contemporary political discussions, what was one thing that grabbed you when you first encountered her thought? What was something that immediately resonated with you? Uh, one of the things that grabbed me first, or when I first encountered Arendt's thought, was definitely the the theme of amor mundi, or love of the world, or care of the world, that sort of pervades um, her writings. And in particular, Arendt's claim that sort of got me into reading her and, and studying her was her claim that um, Christianity was worldless, and actually, in its at least in its in its original inception, didn't didn't have the kind of care for the world or love for the world that she, that she thinks is necessary for for maintaining and sustaining um, um, plurality. And I, you know, I didn't fully buy that claim, um, but I, I do think that 
that critique gives us a powerful tool for sort of assessing uh, the political significance of, of groups and communities and, and religious traditions as well. Like, is the community that you're a part of um, or the thing that you're working together with others on, is it, is it, is it taking care of the world or is, it, is, it, is its orientation sort of otherworldly or too small or too internal? I think she ends up being a little bit unfair to Christianity, um, at least in the human condition. But I think, there, I think there's a really, really powerful sort of insight there um, that we can use to, to think about and analyze um, communities, religious communities, um, especially um, like our political responsibility for a rent would be taking care of taking care of the world. You know, what she means by that is like, is, are you creating and sustaining a human home or a home for, for, that's fit for human plurality? And one of the things that I think is behind this, that, that understanding of political responsibility is her, is her idea of or how she understands freedom or action as having kind of ha having certain worldly conditions. Um, you know, being free isn't just a sort of faculty that I possess as an individual, like a, like a mind or a will. Being free is actually speaks of a kind of worldly material and intersubjective condition. Um, and so to be free isn't just to possess some, some attribute, but it's to have the world set up such a way that, that I can act um, and be recognized freely. So for, for rent, the, the idea of politics or plurality isn't something that's added to human freedom. And a lot of, a lot of political thinking today seems, will, would, would suggest that, you know, freedom is what you get when politics ends, you know, or freedom, freedom and politics sort of are mutually exclusive somehow. But for rent, in fact, they, they're kind of the same thing. Like, like to be, to be free is to have, have a kind of, a particular kind of political space to move around in, and, and as I say, be recognized in. And that's, that's something that I think I found really striking when I first encountered her thought. Yeah, I think Andrew locates correctly the, the challenge that Arendt's thought brings towards uh, uh, individual Christians and Christian communities, right? The idea of Amr Mundi and love for the world. I too, like Andrew, struggle with her claim that at bottom Christianity is, is worldless. Part, part of what I think she means there, she did her PhD on, on Augustine. So I don't know if she has something like Augustine's City of God in the background, where the, the City of God and the City of Man are kind of two separate tracks, even though they coexist simultaneously. The Christians are worried about one and see the other is passing away. I don't know if she's going back to the sort of apocalyptic sense in, say, Pauline letters, uh, epistles that uh, really see the world as fleeting and passing away. Because there's that on the one hand, but on the other hand, in the human condition, she recognizes uh, Jesus Christ as a kind of a singular figure who, uh, who's, who's made uh, original insights about acting and forgiveness that have helped uh, humans learn how to create a home that's fit for human habitation, human plurality, that allows us to continue on after evil acts have been committed and, and things of that nature. And the whole love of the world theme too comes out of scripture, the, the, the line for God so loved the world. Uh, one of the things we will talk about in this course too, which we haven't talked about yet in this interview, is the theme of natality which she gets from scripture too. So she, she mines both Jewish scripture and Christian scripture for insights that she feels are important for understanding the human condition, which is a plural condition. It's about our responsibility to create a space where everyone can flourish and no one's excluded or considered superfluous. Just to say one or two things more about what Arendt says about Jesus in, in the human condition. Like I think, um, Ron, you're right that what Arendt says about, about Jesus is that he's, I think she says something like he's, he's the first thinker or something or political thinker that recognizes um, the fact that forgiveness is a human possibility or a human phenomenon. Right. Th that assessment is quite different from her assessment of Christianity, which has more to do with the, the sort of small community that formed around Christianity for whom the end of the world was coming. It seems like she thinks that, that Jesus' teachings and 
the original Christian community are, are somehow different, which is really, really interesting um, interpretation on her part. But of course, Christianity grew beyond yeah. those micro communities of, of the first generation of Christ followers or disciples. Yes. And has, you know, through Constantine and the Roman Empire, it made its deals, historical deals with power. So to understand um, the phenomenon on the ground today and its sense of calling in the world and mission, those communities still face all the kinds of political questions that Arendt wanted us to ask and I think can only benefit from doing so. It's almost like if the challenges on, on either side are the kind of um, making deals with power, as you say, and so that's one extreme, and the other extreme is, is sort of forming a like apolitical enclave. Yeah. What is there like a middle path that, that religious communities and Christian communities can, can sort of chart that doesn't fall into either of those two dangerous places? There is something deeply within Christianity that's about the power of powerlessness, mm. that once you... Once you sell out your treasure for access to state power, you you lose it somehow. I think yeah. maybe that might be uh, part of her understanding that Christianity is worldless in that sense. But it's also the power of powerlessness. It's not just sheer powerlessness. So I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting, you know, you don't come up with any final answers, but that's one of the questions we ask in the course, which isn't really Arendt's own question, is what is the responsibility of Christians today to be um, effective critics and judges of culture? Uh, what is our responsibility in resisting growing evil, all those kinds of questions. Just before we go, I would like to hear from both of you what is a, a must-read, an Arendt must-read, either an article, a book, something either written by Arendt or about Arendt's thought that our listeners should walk away right now and grab off the shelves and start reading. Uh, well, I guess I would say a sort of must-read piece. Uh, it's something that we weren't able to fit into the course, but I think it's, it's, it's enduringly relevant um, and it's very distinctively Arendt and I think represents one of her like unique in contributions to like political thinking, but it's a very short section in the origins of totalitarianism called the perplexities of the rights of man, where she sort of interrogates the kind of perplexity or, or paradox of the idea of human rights insofar as, as, as she argues, if you're in the kind of position to, to need to claim human rights, because you've got nothing else left to claim, um, you've kind of lost them. I um, mean, she sort of explores the, that paradoxical problem that, that, again, like rights, just like freedom, requires certain political, social, material circumstances. Um, and so if you don't have those, you kind of don't have any system to, to guarantee your rights. So if you're left claiming sheer human rights, you're, you're kind of lost. And there she talks about how that became a very effective strategy of, of totalitarian governments um, to sort of strip people of their rights and dehumanize them and... Um, sort of remove their, their place um, in the world. I think if you wanted to just kind of wet your whistle a little bit, a book called The Last Interview and Other Conversations, it's four interviews that she did uh, with uh, Gunther Gauss on, for German radio, I think. So What Remains, The Language Remains is one of them. Eichmann Was Outrageously Stupid is the second one. Uh, thoughts on politics and revolution, a commentary, and then the last interview she did in 1973. She passed away in 1976. Um, the other is, uh, if you're into graphic novels, uh, this is a lot of fun. It's called The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt, A Tyranny of Truth. And uh, very effectively, this graphic novelist named Ken Krimstein uh, does a really effective job of kind of like doing an intellectual biography of Arendt. And mapping her thought onto three escapes. You know, it's the escape from Nazi Germany, um, 
the escape to the United States. And then there's a third escape, which I can't uh, remember anymore, but it's sort of all, 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 all done around the theme of escape. And I think that's a good, good whistle wetter, if I can call it that. Well, I feel I should add my, uh, my must read to this list since I also care deeply about Erin's thought. So, um, there is a smaller book of hers called Men in Dark Times. And within that, there is an article on the person that will become, uh, later Pope John the 23rd. So as a, as a good, uh, Roman Catholic, any reference to, uh, a Roman Catholic person, by by a thinker is something that attracts me, but she does a very good job in outlining some of his thought and how his his view of Christianity inspire uh, this person that would then uh, call for the Second Vatican Council and then really effectively change uh, the Roman Catholic Church for the 20th century. So that that is my my thought there. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Theron, what's your pleasure? So, my pleasure is um, after moving across the country, kind of amidst this pandemic and to be closer to to some of my loved ones. I now have access to a lot of musical instruments that I did not have when I was living in Toronto. So I've been playing a lot of music in my spare time, which has been which has been super fun. Uh, a lot of a good variety of instruments that I did not have. So that's taking up a lot of my mm. my free time now which has been been great so my pleasure uh is significantly different than yours um because where your pleasure kind of takes your mind off intellectual things but still <laughs> keeps your mind intellectualized um <laughs> my pleasure is quite intellectual more than any that i think i've had on this program so um, I was doing schoolwork, um, reading uh, a, a really good book on Merleau-Ponty uh, called The Resistance of the Sensible World by Emmanuel Aloa. But okay. that's not my pleasure. My <laughs> pleasure is actually what I found in a footnote. Um, so he was talking about phenomenology of perception. And mm. in the phenomenology of perception, Merleau-Ponty talks about this case and the patient can't like he goes through life but can't like step back and evaluate his actions. So Merleau-Ponty starts talking about people like if they they live in this like dreamlike state uh, if they're living in the way that SCHN was doing, or Schneider, apparently, after the fact, he, that was the actual patient's name, um, was doing. And he footnoted, when talking about this, the author Eloa footnoted a book called, or an essay, actually, called um, 
an essay on tiredness <laughs> by uh, Peter Hankey, who just won the Nobel Prize of Literature in 2019. There's a lot of controversy around him, but whatever. The essay is really beautiful. I started reading it because I was pretty intrigued by the title. And uh, it's very beautiful and highly recommend. That's it for our show this week. Stick with us over the summer to hear more about the kinds of courses we'll be offering and to join the conversations for yourself. If you'd like to learn more about the HANA Rent course taking place from May 12 to June 18, or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aris at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter you can follow Mark at, at Mark Standish. You can follow Ron as at Kuypers Ronald. You can follow Hector at Acero F underscore Hector. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or continue to find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, please tell your friends.